Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. One of the keys to a successful life is motivation. Only you can figure out what drives you to work hard, to sacrifice, to persevere in order to achieve something worthwhile. Athletes must be especially in sync with their motivational triggers because the symbiosis between mind and body can often be the difference between the unemployment line and the Hall of Fame. Former SMU and Houston Oilers wide receiver Jerry Levias pushed himself hard, and he became a great football player. As the first African-American scholarship player in the old Southwest Conference, he traveled a lonely road and suffered incidents of horrible abuse. At times, he was motivated by something dark and sinister. And as the years rolled along, this thought tormented him. The soft-spoken man went on to find success away from the gridiron, and he has made a tentative peace with his painful past. But Levias' story is a reminder that sometimes high achievement, especially of the sort required of trailblazers, can exact a high personal toll. Jerry, it's great to have you with us today. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing fantastic. Thank you very much for asking. How old were you when you first realized that some people saw you as a second-class citizen? Well, I guess that was uh, when I was about uh, five or six years old when I lived with my grandmother in a small town in... uh, uh, Southeast Texas called Kirbyville, Texas. And we used to have to go to, uh, town and do shopping and to be out by five o'clock. In other words, you had to be out of town before dark. Yeah. You had to be out of town before dark. Yes. Jerry, how do you explain that to a kid growing up today? Well, it's hard to explain it to a young person today because they, 
a young person wouldn't understand what we've gone through uh, from time of coming to this country until, I guess, into the late uh, early 60s when everybody started talking about civil rights. Uh, some kids the other day, matter of fact, uh, about a year ago, I was working with kids from a, a place called Boy and Girls Harbor, and we were taking them to the zoo, and he says, uh, Martin Luther King Boulevard, I didn't know he lived over here. So it's 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 hard to explain to them, but, you know, young kids, uh, for a while, with the privileges and things that they've been born with, for the people who have contributed uh, to our freedom and equality, uh, it's kind of tough for them to to remember or to see what it was like. And how many of them understand that you were one of the people who attacked that system and broke an important barrier? No, they don't understand it because, uh, <laughs> you know, say I, you know, when they've talked to some young people about the things that I went through and they said, I don't know if I would have taken that. Somebody would have gotten hurt. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have done that. But then when you had no other choice, see, they don't understand that because of the freedoms and the things that uh, people like myself, my, my parents and grandparents went through. Uh, it's kind of difficult, uh, even at the point of me growing up. Uh, I considered I had things good until I really uh, got a chance uh, to see what it was like because my parents would never uh, on vacation. We always went somewhere uh, on the northwest or the west coast where things were a little bit better. What was it like growing up in Beaumont if you could separate the race issue at that point? Well, we had a, a, you know, separating the race issue. We had our own uh, schools. We had our, had some of our own stores because that's the ones yet you go to in the neighborhood. But uh, the high school that I went to, uh, our saying was, and I went to a school called Hebert, but our saying was, whatever Hebert does, it must be the best. And that, in, that included uh, everything from education, athletics, academics, you name it, whatever, even our attitude and the way we uh, acted in the community. Uh, we we had more participants and, you know, that was, uh, we didn't see ourselves as second class citizens until we got outside of that, that area, <clears throat> you know, because people don't understand. My father uh, did not uh, ride the bus. He didn't like for me to ride the bus because you had to sit in the back. And when we went to town uh, to shop, uh, you know, they wouldn't let you would make sure you went to the restroom. You make sure you were not thirsty because they wouldn't let us drink out of those fountains that was colored or whatever. And, you know, it was just the way my father raised us and through faith and through the Bible. uh, We all believed that and we knew that we were uh, children of God. Obviously, you made your mark as an athlete. I want to talk about what I believe was one of your greatest assets, your ability to wall yourself off, your mental toughness. Where did that come from? Well, it came from my parents. It came from my dad uh, and my grandmother, and we were all children of God. And it's just the idea that they did not... uh, 
let us be treated that way. And at the same time, my dad didn't get much of an education, but he had what they called mother wit. And he knew that if a person grew up with mother wit and the education, that they would be a success in life. My father told me that uh, he did not want me working uh, with a shovel. Uh, he always stressed education. And it was tougher for me to even get involved in athletics uh, because of his stance. He wanted me to spend more time on my studies. And the only way that I could play uh, sports uh, or do anything else that if my studies came first. What did you dream about when you were a young boy? What did you want to be? Well, you know, the thing about I wanted to be uh, an engineer. And number one, you have to just go with me. I wanted to be accepted because basically through my whole life, I was bullied. You know, <laughs> I tell stories uh, all the time when I grew up uh, and moved to Beaumont from Kirbyville. You know, it was a country bar going to a city town and there was more things to do. But when I grew up, I just wanted to be accepted. Didn't know what I wanted to do when I was in elementary school or, you know, middle school. But then as I grew up and, you know, saw things out west and up northwest, what people wanted to be, I wanted to be in a, it was more things to do than to work at the factory, work on the farm or stuff like that. So, and our teachers taught us there were things to do. We had a gentleman named Bill Surf who was our history teacher. And he had, in his earlier days, played for the Harlem Globetrotters and traveled all over the world and told us about all different type of things that we can do. But education was going to be the equalizer. It was something they could not take away from you. When did you realize that you were pretty good on a football field? Well, uh, when I, my cousins... Uh, with Mill and Mel Farr were first cousins, and they had played. And then you know, the kids in the neighborhood, everybody wanted to play football. So, but I was always the smallest of my cousins, and uh, I wanted to play. So when you would choose sides in the pickup football game, you know they always chose me uh, because they had to babysit me. Otherwise, they had to go home. So they, I was on their team. But then I made my own mark, and then there was no. That was not a choice. You know, everybody wanted to choose me to play on the team because I was uh, good at what I did in football. How much of your success early on was this mentality that, hey, I'm a small guy, but I'm as good as you are? Uh, that, that came from, uh, I guess, my coaches and my uh, teachers uh, that I had. And, and my, my father didn't want me to play because I was too small. But from the teachers that I had and the coaches that I had, because I can remember uh, distinctly one day, uh, you know, I was the trainer for the football team and the track team. And then uh, one of the best uh, athletes ran a quarter of a mile. And one of the coaches told me to get in there and warm him up. And then you know, I raced him all the way to about maybe 400 yards on a 440-yard track. And then when he passed me at about the last 40 yards, I quit. And a coach from the baseball team saw this, and he called me over. 
and he told me to bend over, and he gave me about five good squats and told me never quit on anything. And from that day, I never have quit anything. If I went out for a sport, I had to play it. If I, you know, there's never quitting. If I got into a race, if I got into a football game, or if I got into, didn't get into very many fights, but if I got into them, I wouldn't quit. Coming out of high school, you had two barriers to overcome. Your size, most historically black schools said you were too small. And the other, obviously, was race. Yeah, I never did. I never did get a uh, a scholarship from uh, historical black universities because they had their choice, and, and I, I was too small. And but then uh, the idea that my cousins had played, Mel went to UCLA, Miller went to Wichita, but then other schools uh, offered me scholarships uh, all over the country. So when I when I graduated, uh, I had academic and athletic scholarships uh, to maybe about 78 different schools, 70 or 80 different schools. Okay, what was the Big 33, and how did that experience affect you? Well, the Big 33, I'd never heard of it. Uh, but at the same time, if you if you read a book called The Kids Got It Right, uh, that was written by Jim Dent, and uh, I didn't know what it was, but at the same time, uh, Doak Walker and uh, um, another gentleman uh, wanted to uh, uh, wanted us to play. But at the same time, the UIL, which was strictly uh, you know all white teams, were playing. And the first year the Big Thirty Three came about that they were beaten by Pennsylvania. For those that didn't know, it was Pennsylvania versus Texas because they were known for their football. So the first year, Pennsylvania beat Texas because there was the UIL, which was the Texas Football League. They were playing their all-star game. So the Big 33 only had, you know, just some guys, sort of a second team to go up, and they got beat. So Doug Walker went up to the governor at the Point and they asked him, they asked him, could the UIL uh, move his schedule so that we could, uh, and the other gentleman was Bobby Lane, and to, to move the schedule so we could get our finest. And the governor said, sure, Governor Conley said, sure, we can move it. So, you know, send our best to play Pennsylvania. <laughs> and then they say, we need governor, we need one more favor. And they say, what's that? They say, we need us some color boys. <laughs> so that's uh, it was three of us that went uh, to the Big 33, and that was my first experience playing integrated football. How did that affect you, that experience? That experience was great. I've never had a problem, you know, growing up. My mother worked for people, and of course, whites, and she was a, a, a housekeeper, cleaner. And I used to go with her cleaning house and, uh, you know, the other families had had kids, and and we got to be friends and stuff like that. So, but going to the, you know, I never had a problem. And then when we would go out west or Seattle or something like that, um, it was no problem. So, but I didn't see uh, necessarily whites as enemies or anything like that. But as long as they, you know, treated us respect and we did what we had to do. 
and my father would keep us out of trouble. So uh, there was no problem. So, you know, going out west and living there during the summers, uh, going on vacation two and three weeks every year, uh, there was no problem. And then the people that worked with my dad and the people that worked, my mother worked for were all just fantastic people to us. So it was easy for you at that point to see the subtlety that it wasn't just black versus white. Uh, it was it was always there. You knew it. But it wasn't uh, a big deal because in my family, and my grandmother and my mother were very religious. And they taught us not to hate. And they, you know, just because there's some things that's going on that you're going to have to have to understand. And as long as you didn't, didn't push those boundaries and you conducted yourself as a human being, uh, that would be no problem. Even if the other person, uh, you know, if they were white, they wanted to try to demean you, uh, you had to keep your composure and a favorite, uh, is a verse of mine that always been taught, uh, to me, uh, was that in Proverbs 2, verse 10, 11, knowledge and wisdom is pleasure to the heart and soul. Discretion will preserve thee and understanding will keep thee. I understood. We understood what the situation was. In early 1965, a man comes into your life and he was going to have a profound effect on you. And you wound up challenging the Jim Crow system in the Southwest Conference. His name was Hayden Fry. What was it about Fry and his pitch to you? Well, it was just the idea. By that time, I had made up my mind that I was going to school to UCLA or I was going to go to uh, Washington State with my brother-in-law uh, and cousin, uh, another cousin, Clancy Williams and George Reed had gone. And, you know, I was headed out uh, west or northwest. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the recruiting time, uh, uh, my coach told me he wanted to bring some people by to see us. And I mean, it just, it, it's a funny story, you know. So, you know, we were waiting. And then all of a sudden, here's three cars drive up in the driveway at our home in the neighborhood in, in Beaumont. And then my high school coach get out, and then there's about five white guys. And, of course, there's uh, Chuck Curtis, who was, you know, a good old country boy. He had a big old, like a Texas Ranger hat on. And all the neighbors came out of the neighborhood on the front porches and were looking. And they thought that was the police looking for me, you know, because part of them went to my grandmother's house. Coach Fry went to my grandmother's house and speak. And the rest of the people came to our home because my grandmother lived next door. And everybody thought I was in trouble or something was happening to see white guys in your neighborhood uh, after three o'clock in the afternoon. So, you know, it was quite a commotion, but then Coach Fry had done, undoubtedly, not undoubtedly, he had done his own work. He knew how important my grandmother was in our lives. And the rest of the other five or six gentlemen came uh, in our home, and Coach Fry was over at my grandmother's home. He was talking to her. And then he came over about maybe 30 minutes later and joined us at our home in our living room. 
but Coach Fry was, he had done his homework. He was some type of guy, and he really, uh, you know, had a good heart. And it was nothing about uh, black or white because some people tried to say that Coach Fry only recruited black because he needed to win. But Coach Fry, if you follow the story, has always said that if he ever got a chance to be a head coach, he would uh, let black players play on his team because as as a young man growing up in Midland, Odessa, he played with the uh, black kids and what he could, couldn't could understand, you know, why they can all play together or go to school together. So he said if he ever got to be a head coach, he would try to remedy that problem. You were one of the first black players in the Southwest Conference, the first at SMU. Did you understand what a monumental thing that was at that time? No, I didn't. I didn't understand it. And that's why I said, you know, I, I, I'm very, uh, I, I believe in my faith and I believe in God and I believe he has a plan for all of us. But I didn't understand it. I didn't realize it. Uh, and, as, you know, I knew we couldn't go to the Southwest Conference. I knew we couldn't go to the white schools in the South. And I didn't even know, I had not heard of Southern Methodist University, but he was the only coach that talked to me as a human being and talked to me about education. He talked about, he says, I heard you're a good football player and I heard you're real smart. And he says, uh, but you know, I would like to see you get your education. What are you 17 or 18 now? And he says, if you're lucky enough, you know, you might play pro ball, you know, you go to college, you might play pro ball. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? And that meant a lot. So when I did visit, I decided to take a visit to SMU because I was already basically kind of committed to go out west. Instead of, you know, you take athletes out and you wine them and dine them, not necessarily wine them, <laughs> but you take them out to dinner and you talk to them and you show them to school. But I was in a seminar for part of my visit at SMU in a, in a course called the nature of man. And it was the first time I've ever experienced and talking to professors, didn't talk to a lot of coaches, talked to a lot of professors at school. And it came about that he was more interested in my education uh, than any of the other coaches or other schools that I ever visited. As we will discuss, the uh, education you received at SMU went far beyond academics. Oh, yes. I, I got an education in life, uh, say going to SMU and, and, and about the world and what it was. So, And one of the things about it is that, you know, you, you get an education that can't take it away from you. So I'm one of these people that I believe in. My dad and my family's already always believed in the value of education and what it can be because they can't take it. That's the thing that can equalize everything. You know, if you're good enough, if you're smart enough, if someone won't hire you, let you do something that's not necessary because you're not educated, it's because you're black or they didn't want, you know, diversity. My dad didn't, you know, if a man did not like me or appreciate me, let it be because he was racist. Early on in your time at SMU, Martin Luther King Jr. came to town to make a speech, and you got the opportunity to spend some time with him. What did he tell you? 
Well, yeah, a meeting with, uh, at that time, he's come over, and, you know, and they tried to protect me because uh, they didn't want Dr. King's speech at SMU to be that, and that was the reason I was there because of this. So he and I, we, they, the Willis take the president of the university, set it up so that I could meet him in private. And he said to me, I hear you are a, uh, a good athlete. And I said, yes, sir, that I am. He says, and you have you, your faith, you believe in God. I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, one thing I want to just tell you, always keep your emotions in control. And that was one of the things that have, uh, for, in my entire life, uh, that meant more to me because I think I overdid it sometimes. Uh, keeping my emotions in control because when they spit on me or called me all kind of names and stuff like that, it was, it just rolled off. Even inside and mentally it was there, but my emotions and coach Fry summed it up in a different way. <laughs> you know, you had to learn to speak West Texas when he says, if you don't want them to get your goat, don't let them know where it's hit. Right. I love that. Uh, talk to me about, how you integrated that team. Some of those guys didn't want you to be there. Yeah, uh, the all of them. Uh, you know, you can say some were more courteous, some were more outward than the others, and they didn't want me there. And then, um, you know, I had uh, a young man in that room with uh, that was on the team at the Big 33. And uh, he was going to SMU, so they thought it would be a perfect match for as a freshman for us to room together. And um, but after about a week or two, uh, the dean called me in uh, to his office and and gave the young man enough time to move out. And dean told me says that uh, the young man didn't want to room with me anymore. So in a four-year uh, at college experience, I never did have a roommate. Freshmen at that time could not uh, play varsity football. So we had a, a, uh, a freshman team. And, of course, the, the, the coach, who was named Sleepy Morgan, uh, they didn't want to show any favoritism or anything like that. They wanted me to earn what I got. So, you know, when you got the great recruits that you had in the Southwest Conference, uh, you would put the number one defense against the worst, uh, the number four offense. So needless to say, when I got a chance to carry the ball and catch passes, uh, I made my mark. But at the same time, they made their mark too because uh, I was beat up every day in practice. You know, I got cracked ribs, wedge vertebras, spit on and everything like that. So as a freshman, and a lot of uh, guys didn't want to take showers with me. Some of the trainers, all of the trainers, except for the head trainer, Eddie Lane, no one wanted to take my ankles, uh, you know, or touch me or treat me for any treatment. So uh, the head trainer, Eddie Lane, at that time, he had also uh, trained up at Washington State with my brother-in-law, George Reed. And so, but he... Uh, the head trainer was the only one that would take me or uh, for any other type of uh, injuries that I had. How do you process as a teenager the dehumanizing aspects of, of what you're talking about without it 
without allowing it to affect the way you see yourself? Well, it, it, it came to me because, uh, like my grandmother, you know, we, you know, you talk about the Bible, and that's the way we were, we were raised. We we believed in it, but uh, you know, she wanted me, and you know, and when I talk about faith, you know, and I wore number twenty three in college, and then when I first started playing pro ball, because she's always uh, believed in Psalms twenty three. You know, and in the Bible, the Lord is my shepherd. You know that. I mean, it says what? What about uh, my life? And she says, when I wanted to play football, she says I want you to be like David, and that's why I ask. And I've always wanted to wear number twenty-three, and even Coach Fry today calls me number twenty-three. Uh, <clears throat> and of course, he, you know, fantastic man, but. Going into the situation and learning about life, because, you know, there was only a certain part of the community and certain part of things that you would look at. And, of course, television at that point wasn't as like it is today and everything, but all you saw was blackface and everything on television. And I think the first black person I saw on the show was uh, uh, Nat King Cole, you know, when he was singing. But then when uh, you know, right now I still have the problem of I don't like to go shopping because, you know, when you went shopping at the stores, you you couldn't try on the shoes, you couldn't try on the clothes. So all my clothes, I was measured with a string. And so even today, I don't even like to go shopping, even though my wife makes me go. It, it still has a stigma with me growing up that way. Uh and having uh, to people treat you that way. And then going to college uh, and have people treat you that way. And, you know, I went from, I guess, you want to say 17, 18 years old to a situation where basically I was in isolation. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. Many of your teammates eventually changed their attitude. Tell me about that evolution. Well, I'll put it to you this way. I was only good for Saturdays. And that's when we played football. You know, it, it you know, even though they were civil and I could score, you know, touchdowns and some of the things, but I had no social life with my uh my teammates. I was good for Saturdays only. You know, even though some guys were, you know, the nice, but, you know, social life, going out, doing things together and all that, it was none of that. So I had my world and they had their world. And even the first day of class, it was difficult. Um, the first day of class, when I went to college, um, I sat down and I had a whole row of seats to myself. And then the teacher would say, said, uh, if you were a black person and no one wanted to sit with you or no one wanted to give you an education, how would you feel? And then some of the students got up from the wall and they sat next to me. So even in classes, a lot of it uh, was there. So, But as time went on, and of course, as Jerry Levi's start playing football, of course, everyone wants to sit uh, uh, next to me. But at the same time, 
I had to prove myself in those classes. And, you know, that uh, I was just as good or better uh, than they were uh, education-wise. Well, one of the, the turning points in your football career and your life was the TCU game of 1966. What happened that day? Well, uh, we were in a position uh, to win the Southwest Conference if we beat TCU or uh, and we would win the conference. And then uh, we're getting dressed. It's very exciting, you know, very exciting being on. Uh, I've always won in high school and everything else. And it was very exciting. And, you know, I had a great uh, season. I was having had a great season scoring touchdowns in the last minute or the last seconds of the game. Had a great sophomore year, but then we were getting ready to play TCU and uh, the coach uh, told me, he says, Jerry, I want you to get off the bus last. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, I'm a star. You know, so and then all of a sudden, you know, I get off the bus and there's policemen surrounding me, uh, uh, escorting me in the dressing room. And then at the same time, you're getting dressed and you know, coach pulled me up to the side, called me in the private room and says, uh, Jerry, your life has been threatened. And what, what I want you to do is when you go on the field and you come off the field, I want you to sit at the at this end of the bench and there were policemen or whatever. And <laughs> it's not too much of a time to think about it. What you're going to do is say, no, I'm not going. But, you know, I had so much confidence in Coach Fry and the things that he said. Uh, to me and the way he treated me that it was no big deal if it was going to happen it was going to happen and he said you just have to believe and you know Coach Fry was I mean I just can't say enough about him because when I was recruited my grandmother asked Coach Fry one thing she says will you help him to call me before each game to get a prayer so that I could pray for him and Coach Fry did that before every game, regardless. Uh, he, he had me to call my grandmother and pray for him. So my grandmother would talk to Missy, and she would say, bless them, for they know not what they do. And I would tell my grandmother, I said, grandmother's white boy is trying to kill me. They know what they're trying to do. So but she said, son, you just have to believe. Be like David, Psalms 23. That wasn't the game that pushed me to the edge. It was my senior year. Yeah, that was the first time I really hated. The TCU game of 1968. Yeah, last game of the uh, season, and we would, you know, playing TCU, and then they would, you know, say the the, the threat on my life. Uh, uh, there wasn't a threat on my life at that point, but, you know, I always had protection. Two and a half, three years, I've always had protection when I was at SMU. But then at the same time, I had caught a pass, and a young man spit in my face, called me all kind of names, and I just got tired of it. And I went to the sidelines, and I threw my helmet down. And, you know, I just said a few words, you know, that you can't repeat. And Coach Fry saw it. And, you know, and I just told him I quit. 
I'm not taking this stuff anymore. I quit. I I, I just can't handle it. I've, I've done it. I so he just came and he sat down and he talked to me and he says, and he, when he loved me, he called me Levi. He said, Levi, you don't let a guy like that destroy everything that you've done. He says, I tell you what, we're going to hold them and, and they're going to punt to us and you just take this punt and you run it all the way back. And said, we'll win this game. And it's like maybe four minutes left in the game. I catch the punt. You know, I mean, I I get up. I said, okay, coach. I get up and after his speech, I run onto the football field. In the back. <laughs> Another minute, he calls me back. He's calling me back. He's calling me back. And I said, what's the matter, coach? He throws his helmet. He throw throw my helmet out to me. Said, you gonna need this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't realize that in him. I was angry. It was the first time I lost my composure, and I was mad and angry. And he said, you're going to need this. And I got my helmet and went out. And I ran the, the punt back 83 yards for the winning touchdown of the game. And that was, a, even though it was so beautiful, uh, when you, I said, athlete runs a punt back, and you dodge this guy, and you run over this guy. It was one of the most beautiful touchdowns I've ever run. But at the same time, it's the worst in my life because I did it out of hate. I dared anybody to touch me. I did it out of hate. And something that wonderful that I've done and, and everything that I've done in my life, that touchdown is one of the worst things because I felt hate. For that first time in my life, that kind of hate I would have killed. And that's one of the things that, uh, you know, you don't want to feel that because hate hurts. Not only the other person, but it hates you. It hurts you. And then, you know, I I, uh, I think it was a growing moment also because every I, I did what Dr. King said. I kept my emotions in control. But then when you lose your emotions, it, it necessarily hurts you, but it hurt, it hurt the other person, but it hurts you. And I remember that all the time. And, I, and that touchdown uh, was... One of the ones that I I don't think about it often because I don't want that taste again in my life. Fair to say that out of that moment and many others like it, you weaponized the pain against yourself, didn't you? Yes, I did. And, uh, you know, that and that kind of stuff, you know, you realize what you've gone through and I don't know how I did it and I don't know why I went to SMU to put myself in that kind of position. But the good Lord has the ways that you look out here, how everything turned out. Uh, of course, you know, there were times when I wanted to quit. And, uh, you know, I was, it was about my, it was uh, my freshman year. I had called my sister in California, Charlena, and I said, I can't take this anymore. I said, I'm quitting. And uh, there was a, a young man who worked as a janitor, and he also drove a cab at SMU. And I had already talked to him about taking me to the airport. I had already called uh, in California and told him I was coming out. And I called my sister and told her I'd be out. And she said, you know what Daddy said? I said, what was that? She said, you make your bed, you sleep in it. You gave that man your word that you would go to and play school there. And my father always 
wanted me to be a man of my word. My father was a man of his word, regardless of whatever happened. And from that, I couldn't go because then I would have disappointed, being my father's only son, I would have disappointed him of leaving and quitting. And, and you know, because he always believed you, man, if you're going to say you're going to do something, you do it and you complete it. So on that, when my sister said that, you know what daddy said, you make your bed, you sleep in it. I made the bed, so I had to stay there. You ended up having a good pro football career with the Oilers and the Chargers, but you still had this pain deep in your head, didn't you? Yeah, I, you know, I always, and I still have it. It's it's not a pain. It's uh, It's something that motivates me in the right way. I know not to hate. But I, if uh, you know, a lot of people do not realize that. Sure, I graduated all American, but I also graduated academic all American. The people don't think about that under those circumstances. And then when I see things going on, and you know, and I want kids to get their education, regardless if they play football or not, because education is the equalizer. And you know, I still have. You know, times, you know, sometimes my wife and the dog had to sleep in different rooms because I was acting out in my sleep of things that I had done to me or wanted to say. So I had to keep all that inside. And, you know, I had to, you know, you know, seek some therapy because I held so much inside. And when Dr. King told me, I always keep emotions in control, you know, trying to keep you know, emotions and control, even, you know, when they're not on the football field or you're in society and the things, you know, you see things that are wrong, you know, so you basically try to understand and then, you know, (laughs) discretion. How long did it take you to understand, Jerry, that by keeping that stuff inside, you were giving it power over you? Uh, well, it got to me, I think, after I got out of uh, pro football. And I always worked. Uh, I worked for a company called Continental Oil. And then you had situations there where race played a situation. But I think after I got left uh, the job in pro football, you know, I sought a little help. Uh, trying to get people to understand because, you know, at that time you grew up, you know, say grown men don't cry or you don't want to, you know, if you don't want to show any emotions or this kind of stuff. So I hid my emotions and, you know, you taking uh, the depression medicine and stuff like that. And the doctor told me I need to go and see someone. So, you know, you go and you talk to them and they really, you, you really have to let loose and tell everything how you feel, and you you know it, it, it's tough to to cry, uh, and you grew up with that type of thing. But you know it's a daily thing even today uh, when I see things going on, and you know how you know people haven't learned their lessons and, and things of that nature to accept each other as a child of God, and even in board meetings and things when I see things that have happened, I have to preface those things as a child of God, even when I see their prejudice or it's going to be not being right or people of color. 
I have to put my situation as in a child of God because people are going to say, well, you're just saying that because you're black. But I always preface it and says, I'm speaking to you as a child of God, period. And all these years later, 50-odd years after SMU, you're still healing, aren't you? Yes, I still feel it. And uh, it, it's just to the situation where, like I'm talking to you, that I can talk about it uh, without uh, feeling bad. But, uh, you know, I'm happy. Finally, after, you know, meeting my wife and, and talking to her and letting her know who I really was without having a facade, that I, I do hurt. Uh, I, I, uh, I need to be talked to because I do have a temper. And, you know, but trying to keep my emotions in control and and things like that. So, you know, you go to the doctor and everybody want to medicate you and this and that. But no, that didn't work. A transcendental meditation and everything. Trying, but trying to realize who you really are as a person. And, you know, you can say all the different philosophies and everything else. But then as a person, when they, and I go to say, we hold these truths as self-evident that all men are created equal. But after that, you're on your own. If you think back to that moment against TCU, when you let those people make you hate, how did that affect the rest of your life? It taught me a lesson about losing control of yourself. And that, that taught me a lesson because I don't want that feeling. I don't want it. When that, when that feeling and when I see stuff on television or people doing I don't want that feeling. I don't want to hate, you know, hate. I mean, it's horrible and for myself. And it's also, to me, shows a sign of weakness. And I don't want to be weak. I'm stronger than that. But then, and I, and I realized uh, from that moment what it felt like, and I don't want that taste. I don't want that feeling anymore in my life. You know, sometimes it comes in and I have to relax and take a, few minutes, uh, count to 10, a breath, or go back and meditate or pray. I don't want that feeling anymore. It's horrible. The success you had in the business world after football, did that validate you in a different way? Yeah, it validated me because, uh, you know, I was, you know, when people says, you know, that, uh, <laughs> You know, uh, all football players are dumb. Jerry's a football player. Therefore, he's done. That's what they call illogical syllogistic reasoning. And I didn't want that. But, uh, you know, and, and even when I approach business, I have a long history in business of being the first to do a lot of different things in the business world, being part of first. I went to. Uh, you know, Conoco sent me to school being uh, talking about marketing when they first decided to put blacks into commercials into doing a lot of different things, going into business for myself is, and learning the ropes and you have to play the tricks of the trades to succeed. Some people didn't want to do business with you uh, because you were black. And then, you know, I went to the as I was a salesman for a company. So, you know, all the stuff that you had to learn, and, and sometimes it's what they call basic marketing. And you have to know your opponent, just like in football. You have to know their moves. You have to know what they're doing. So in society, you know what type of people what you deal with. You know, it, it's all of us have that uh, kind of characters of uh, wild animals. 
you know, what you have to watch out for, you know, to protect, protect yourself. So, but learning how to think and learning and believing in God and believing in people, I still believe in people. And I know, you know, that there, there is a God and I've been blessed. How were you able to hold on and not quit in that moment we've talked about and in so many other moments? What was it about you that enabled you to take the punishment and keep going? Well, I have, uh, I have a lot of pride in myself. I don't, and I got, and I had to learn to separate pride from ego, you know, and, and the blessings that I received. So the things that I hold on to right now and the things that I did in business, I try to do them the best I can. So, you know, to separate yourself from the, the ego, being egotistical and just have proud and be proud of yourself and being part of the, the human race. You know, I am God's child. When you look at college football today and see how dramatically different it is, are you able to, to feel the, the satisfaction I feel some of it, satisfaction uh, about doing what I did, and I didn't do it uh, for the reason to open doors and anything like that. But I, I, I did. But if if I did good and and it helped, but what I disagree with uh, in college today, a lot of these kids are being recruited. And education is secondary. And I thank God I had a coach like Coach Fry that made sure that academically that I, I went to class and I did everything else because, you know, it wasn't easy uh, going uh, and going through what I went to SMU because, you know, Coach Fry, you know, he made sure that uh, he kept me kept up with my, my grades and things like that. And then if I wasn't doing well, he said, I'm going to call your mother so and your grandmother. But I see that a lot of young guys, uh, you know, you got the opportunity to go to college and you're getting a scholarship and you're getting your education paid for uh, by playing football. And they got and they have the opportunities, but that education is a thing. And I do not like the idea of some of the young men just through the coaches recruiting them after they get them in school and give them some of these small classes just to keep them eligible. I don't like that part of it. And I hope that's a thing that, yeah, you know, young men be blessed with a coach that I had that cared about the academic side and the education and what you were going to do in life after you play football. Because like they said, you know, it's even in college, it's, you know, what is it, a very small percentage of the athletes make professional football. But they all have the opportunity to get an education and get a job, uh, um, make a career for themselves. Jerry, there are, there are people, young people out there today who, for various reasons, don't see any hope. They, they, don't, they, they don't see the vast opportunities out there. What would you tell them about the possibilities of life? You know, the possibility of life, you know, you know, God gave you the gift of life, but you have to live life. Life does not live you. You live life. and You seek the opportunities that are out there. They are out there. You know, and, and I lo- would like to see a lot of young people academically succeed. But then if they can't, you know, get a trade, learn to do something. 
uh, with yourself because you have the opportunity. People like myself, Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and everybody else, they paved the way for us to talk about equality, you know, because when they first talked about the EEOC and equal opportunity, or, you know, it, and it's got a little teeth in it, you, you have everything, you know, so don't let that be an excuse that people didn't hire me because I was black or anything like that. Let that be that I'm not qualified. Make sure you're qualified to do whatever it is. And sometimes, you know, you have in the community that if you don't go to college, that you don't stand a chance. But then I talked to a lot of young people about, you know, getting a trade, learn to do something, learn to think, because, you know, pretty soon, you know, man has become extinct. Everything's going to be mechanical anyway. So you better get a trade. What does America mean to you, Jerry? Well, America means to me, man, it's the greatest country in the world. Uh, The opportunities are there for you. You know, it's like anything else. There's going to be, you're going to have to fight to it. You're going to have to live life. You have to fight for what you want. I mean, I don't mean that physically fighting. I'm not, you know, that time, but you have to get in there. You have to compete. It's all out there for you. People have, you know, from the Columbus to everything else and to the Civil War and everything else. And now we're here with opportunities, equality and everything else. You know, judge me. Because I'm qualified, not, you know, judgment of content of my character, not the color of my skin, like Dr. King says. And that's what I want people to do. And, you know, you still have to face it. But then sometimes, you know, uh, I get to talking about different things and people are still wondering, wow, he's smart. He knows what's going on. Or, you know, so some people still believe in that logical syllogistic reasoning, major premise, minus premise, and a conclusion. Because you're a football player, where a lot of people think, "Oh, you play football, so therefore you're done." But I like to fool them. I like to prove them wrong. Well, you've you've proven a lot of people wrong in your life. Listen, thank you very much, and you know, doing things like this and talking about things like this mentally it helps me, and I appreciate it. Thanks to Elaine McGibney and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life and audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You, too, can become an American Achiever.